Winton Higgins, Wellington, New Zealand, second talk of a retreat, sorry, workshop on secular Buddhism. Um, so on the basis of um, going back to first principles about what the Buddha Dharma is all about, I thought in this talk we'd talk about updating the practice on the basis of those first principles. Uh, so what I was saying this morning was that the, the four great tasks, or if you want to be very strict about it, the four, because we don't know what noun was used <laughs> in the original teaching, um, these are the kernel of the Buddha's teaching. And uh, they form a, a feedback loop because the, uh, the fourth uh, of the great tasks is uh, the cultivation of the path. So as one cultivates the path, one um, comes back into the four great tasks. Uh, the parable, for those who know of it, of the city, the ancient city, would be familiar with this idea. I mean, very briefly, that parable was some... Um, it was a reminiscence by the Buddha about what it felt like to have the awakening experience he had. And he said it was as if someone was wandering through the jungle and came across the remains of an ancient highway that was long abandoned. And the wanderer follows this um, ancient highway and comes to an ancient city, also long abandoned, but a city which was really um, grand, you know, with um, parks and gardens and terraces and turrets and so forth. And so the wanderer goes back to his own community and tells the authorities what he's discovered and suggests to them that they should renovate the city and repopulate it. And they go along with this suggestion and after some time the city is repopulated, all the parks and gardens and terraces etc have been cleaned up and there is a community living there uh, aware of the four great tasks and living accordingly. So um, there's some really interesting aspects of that parable but one is of course the idea of the path leading into a way of life and the people who are living this way of life are human beings. They know um, birth, sickness, old age and death but they are living well all the symbolism is that they are living well and um, living meaningfully, living with, uh, with dignity, uh, lives worthy of human beings. So um, there's, the, there's the feedback loop and also the absence of any kind of otherworldly concerns. You know, these are not characters who vanished off to some heaven realm. Uh, they are people who are 
who are remaining with the constitutive elements of the human condition. But they've got it sorted. So um, that, I think, is what... Um, it, it is not only showing the, how the practice is a feedback loop, but also how the practice fits together. So what happened to all this? The Buddha uh, died, uh, according to the tradition, when he was 80. Um, and the last 45 years of his life was spent in his teaching career. He's generally taken to have had the critical awakening experience when he was 35. And um, he, when he died, he had quite a large following in the Gangetic Basin of the, as um, areas of uh, small kingdoms and even tinier republics around the Ganges River. And um, basically, these, um, his followers were of two kinds. There were the uh, renunciant followers who lived in these uh, little... Uh, communities, which um, we touched on in the discussion period before lunch. And then there were the lay followers, those who had remained uh, in what was quaintly called in the days the household life, in other words, the life we live, with jobs and kids and dogs and mortgages, and they probably didn't have mortgages. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, whatever the household life uh, consisted of in those days. Um, and um, and the, so the, the, the renunciant communities were flat communities, as one would say in today's management ease. You know, there was no hierarchies, there were no boss cockies. Um, and, um, and this seemed to work quite well. You know, some of these communities work better than others. We, there are examples in the canon of uh, communities that gone seriously off the rails, but others which were sounded really delightful, like um, uh, one where the Buddha came, he, he used to do the rounds of these things, except during the rains period when was the only time when he'd, when he'd stay in one place for three months. Um, but um, he came to one that was that struck him as being particularly successful. It's a delightful little story, you know, sort of banal, but yet it's it, but it's quite um, moving. And he says he comes into this place and he he's, he's got the sense that pe it, people are really doing well and it's very quiet, and it's um, very harmonious, and 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 everything is being looked after. It's still today in Asia, you know, one of the tests of a... If you go to a Buddhist monastery, if you want to know if it's, if it's working okay, you look at the toilets. And if the toilets are clean, then it's, <laughs> the monastery's doing okay. <laughs> uh, but then he said, he asked the, you know, one of them, said, what's your secret? And he said, and uh, the, the monk said, oh, well, it's... Not so hard, really. You know, if somebody um, notices that the uh, latrine bucket needs emptying, he goes and empties it. And if somebody notices that the you know, water bucket needs filling, he goes and fills it, and so on. You know, nobody has to talk about this. People are living 
lives in an aware way. They're living in a community. They don't have to have endless meetings of, you know, who's rostered on to, to empty the latrine or anything like that. It just flows because these people understand their communal responsibilities and they've got their eyes and ears open. So they don't have to talk about it. It's very quiet in this place. So, um, what the Buddha um, developed also for communities but also for individuals was a particular ethic, which these days is translated into the five lay precepts. Uh, and unfortunately, it's part of um, religification to turn them into rules. But they're not rules, they're actually um, an ethic. Because the, the difference between an ethic and a rule is an ethics, ethics are about fundamental values that we try to cultivate in our lives. Whereas morality is rules which um, are supposed to achieve some sort of uh, purpose. It can be actually the, the, the moral rules might be there to try and uh, reinforce an ethic. But really it's the ethic that counts. And the, Buddhist, and the Buddha's ethic was universal friendliness, generosity, contentment, uh, honesty, and mental clarity. You know, that, that is really what um, Buddhist ethics is at base level. Can you repeat that, please? Yeah. Universal friendliness, metta, uh, generosity, dana, something that um, Ramsey is keen on. <laughs> Contentment, honesty or uh, truthful communication, and clarity, mental clarity. So it, in the five precepts, they're in negative form. Um, you know, not harming living beings, not taking the non-given, um, avoiding sexual misconduct, avoiding um, misleading communication, and uh, stupefaction through, you know, classically taking alcohol or drugs, but can be any of the things I was mentioning this morning, ways we have to dull ourselves. So um, what we can also see if we understand this as an ethic and not as a set of moral rules is that uh, we can never do enough to cultivate them. And particularly in our... Um, in our own uh, culture and in our own time, it has um, enormous ramifications for how we are as citizens, how we, um, how we um, look after our civic responsibilities towards um, the environment, to other life forms, uh, to those who are the victims of relative deprivation or of warfare, torture or uh, all the other ills that visit us vicariously, of course, in these um, t 
two dominions uh, with the problem of, um, or, or what we conceive of, our political masters conceive of, as the problem of asylum seekers. Um, so, um, the, we, if we attend to the ethics, we can see that that has extensions, extraordinary extensions for us in how we are in the world. Um, not only as individuals, as members of families, as um, uh, people contributing to some sort of working community wherever uh, we have our occupations, but how we are as, as citizens. And um, then if we look at... Um, so I'm, what, I, what I'm doing here is going through the three great trainings. Now, the eightfold path which we were looking at this morning, is um, often handily summarised or boiled down to the three great trainings, ethics, meditation and wisdom. So if we go into meditation, the Buddha had uh, quite a lot to say about meditation and um, probably his most important teaching, and it's a very long one, uh, on meditation is the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And that is the, um, the foundation teaching for insight meditation, which I guess is what most of us are on about in terms of our normal Buddhist practice. What is interesting about um, the Satipatthana Sutta is that it has an awful lot to say about how we might parse our experience. What is it we can, how is it we can direct our attention so that we cover all the bases? And for the Buddha, there were five principal bases to look at. Uh, the first one has to do with uh, the body, all the experience that comes through us through being embodied beings. So, you know, we can be uh, aware of temperature, for instance. We can be uh, aware of um, pressure points on the body as we're sitting, or it doesn't have to be when we're sitting, when we're just leading our normal lives. Uh, we can be uh, aware of all sorts of bodily sensations. We can be aware of particularly of the tactile sense. We're always coming into contact with things, so we can be aware of how that feels all the time. And we can be aware of aches and pains. Uh, we can be aware of time working on the body. Given the demographic in the room, I guess we all know about that. <laughs> Um, then, um, then there is feeling, there is, um, there is pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feeling. Uh, a lot of us don't, you know, it, these feelings arrive, uh, come and go so fast that we usually don't uh, notice them. But every contact we have with uh, a physical object, a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch, uh, or a thought, there's a feeling tone to it. It's pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neutral. Oh, I don't want it to look that God, what a terrible hat. Now, there's a nice pair of legs. Uh, and so on. You know, it, it's going so fast. 
And one of the things the Buddha is saying is, note this, yeah, pay attention. Because uh, the feeling tone will often, if we don't pick it up, will often trigger a reaction and take us to a place maybe we don't want to go. Um, then there is perception. And we, we are all perceiving the whole time. You know, our eye does the camera work, but we haven't got a clue uh, what we're looking at until perception kicks in. And then, but our perception is based upon our, our history, our upbringing, etc., uh, so that uh, we're dependent on perception to find our way around the world and to understand what's going on in a very immediate sense. But our perceptions may not be right. You know, there might be something, there might be misperceptions going on. So we need to be aware of this faculty we have of perception and where it's taking us, where it's coming from, where it's taking us. And then there is um, uh, uh, mind states. You know, we, we are constantly in a mood of some kind. Uh, there's, this, of course, is much, these are kind of much more, kind of, uh, more, slightly more long-term than the feelings, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, but, you know, we can be angry or we can be sad or we can be happy, uh, you know, um, we can be blissful, whatever it is. And the Buddha is saying, note that, be, be aware of this, because this is also playing in to how you are in the world. And then there is... Um, Awareness itself, consciousness. Uh, so, our um, uh, what is what is actually in our minds? It can be a cog it can be the, all that cognitive stuff going on. But as we increase our awareness of the other foundations of mindfulness, um, then this too is becoming part of this um, this fourth foundation, the the the, the foundation of awareness. So uh, the Buddha has all this to say about what meditation is for, uh, what you can do with your meditation practice, what you can look at, um, things to particularly pay attention to because they're going on very fast and you may habitually skip them. But what he does not do is give any technique so, this raises the issue of where do techniques come from? Where do meditation techniques come from? Well, you know, the negative answer is they're not coming from the Buddha. Uh, so they are coming from something that has intervened between his time and ours. And this we spent some time talking about in the discussion period um, before lunch. It comes from the institutional adaptations of meditation within monasteries. So, what, um, has, what, what happened and still happens in most Buddhist monasteries? They're, they're total institutions, in the sense I talked about this morning. They regulate every aspect of the life of the inmates, inhabitants, whatever you want to call them. Um, and what is terribly important is standardisation in a monastery. So the idea is you get all these celibate men, 
in and you regiment them. And you, one of the ways of regimenting them is, uh, well, there's several ways, like chanting, a lot of chanting, uh, you know, a, a lot of actual performance of uh, per performance of compliance, performance of conformity. But then there is also in meditation uh, the you get the idea that there are certain steps that have to be followed, certain things that have to be done. So everyone is doing the same practice and um, having the same experiences. And then you have a, um, in many cases, a sort of um, a graduated, a, an idea of graduated stages in meditation. So, for instance, if you take the Mahasi uh, method of Vipassana, which is, uh, Vipassana is Pali word for looking deeply, but it's become a, become a kind of a, a brand for particular kinds of meditation. And in the Mahasi method, there are 17 insight knowledges. Now, where is all this stuff coming from? It's coming from something called the Abhidharma. And the Abhidharma um, uh, was a kind of highly intellectual movement that began in, in uh, monasteries uh, at least three centuries after the Buddha's death, uh, where they tried to produce a high, what was called a higher teaching. That's what the Abhidharma is. I mean, just imagine the hubris of this. <laughs> if, if the Abhidharma is the higher teaching, then the Buddha's teaching is the lower teaching. <laughs> so the Abhidharma is uh, full of metaphysical propositions. It's very clean and orderly, um, unlike the, the Buddha's own teaching, which, as we've seen, was contextual, was situational. He, wasn't, he didn't know from one minute to the next who was going to rock up and ask him a question and how he was going to answer it, etc. Um, so the Abhidharma wanted to get rid of all that chaos and create an extremely orderly scheme uh, which was um, attributed, uh, ag again with uh, a great deal of self-deception, to the Buddha himself. <clears throat> so it's out of the Abhidharma that we get most of the formulaic meditation practices that are on the market in the West today, uh, like um, Goenka practice or, um, or Mahasi practice. Now, I'm just taking the Mahasi practice because it's really interesting that, that it works on the basis that there are 17 insight knowledges which uh, can only be accessed through meditation and that meditation has to be in this highly orderly formulaic way and so the idea is that the practitioner uh, follows the technical instructions and uh, does the formulaic meditation reports the results to her or his teacher and the teacher has you know, um, the crib sheet <laughs> and uh, knows when 
the student has hit the first insight knowledge. Then uh, the student is tracked to the second one. The student really hasn't got the crib sheet, so she or he is, is just reporting what's happening in their meditation as they follow the instructions. And, um, but then, you know, with, with a little bit of subtle guidance, perhaps, from, from uh, teacher, they, they gradually work their way through three, four, five, six, seven, etc. Uh, and then, um, and then at, once you reach uh, number 17, you've made it. Um, you can go home then. <laughs> uh, but it's, um, it, it's that kind of a, attempt to make things so cut and dried that points, of course, it's pointing back to a form of regimentation appropriate to total institutions, all of whose uh, inhabitants are celibate males. Now, if you're a celibate male, then you're not only... Um, uh, represent a tiny proportion of humanity, but uh, but you've also got uh, a whole lot of um, you, 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 you're living a renunciant life, so you're living living a life which is highly peculiar in terms of um, how most humans live their lives. But uh, it means also cutting off an awful lot of our human potential. You know, our human potential. Um, to fall in love, to mate, to have kids, to have friends, uh, to go out and see a movie, <laughs> and to play a game of cricket, and uh, you know all that sort of stuff. So, the training is extremely uh, ascetic. Getting back to our you know, our contrast between purification, self purification versus uh, self in, self enlargement. So it's a very it, it's a very um, odd kind of model for people to be living to. But it becomes even odder when this particular monastic approach, a disciplinary regiment regimenting mode of practice of meditation is suddenly taken out of um, a monastery full of celibate men and are given to people who are living normal lives and some of them aren't even men. So, um, you know, one would expect that someone would think, hey, wait a minute, what is the relevance of this practice to these people? And... That's, that seems to me the, the question that's not being asked when you find people in the droves signing up for Goenka retreats or this sort of thing. Um, and and uh, what happens quite often, and I, I know my, for many years as a meditation teacher, uh, I had, you know, I'd run uh, courses and retreats for beginners, and these people come up to me in despair and say, I can't do it. I can't meditate. <laughs> and, and, you know, it took me a while myself to figure out, to say, well, look, you can't, you can't follow the instructions because you're not a celibate male. Um, 
because that's all they're designed for, really. <laughs> so this is why there's, uh, there's this movement back from, um, from these formulaic approaches to meditation, all of which have monastic origins, despite their laicization now, um, to a non-formulaic practice, which is probably rather like the one uh, that people took up when they heard the Buddha speak. The Buddha told them what meditation was about, uh, what they should look for, and nobody, they, nobody thought to say, hey, can you give us some instructions? <laughs> it doesn't seem to have arisen. The issue didn't arise at all during the Buddha's lifetime. You know, we, we don't know how to meditate. So give us some instructions. It's like, you know, as, a, as an academic, I'd try and stimulate people to think and, they, and, and then someone would say, oh, don't, don't ask me to think, just tell me what I have to do to pass. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of um, uh, that sort of problem. Um, so, once again, we're pointing to the um, the issue of the institutional effects we find when we import uh, Buddhism and Buddhist practices from Asian countries. Uh, and and it's worth knowing, for instance, that. We take the Theravadan aspect of things, and insight meditation tends to have come down through the Theravadan tradition. Um, only about 10% of Theravadan monastics actually meditate. Uh, and it's certainly not expected of, um, of uh, lay people in Asian countries. I mean, meditation. There are some honourable exceptions to this in certain parts of the, of the Asian Buddhist world. But by and large, uh, meditation is seen as being some sort of esoteric practice uh, that only uh, monks can do. And, and I'm using the gender-exclusive expression deliberately because there's hardly any nuns. And if there are nuns, uh, they're often just, you know, put to washing up and making the beds, etc. Uh, so um, it, it's uh, when we're looking at how are we going to meditate, how are we going to practice this second great training, uh, we really have to um, think about that and think about uh, are we actually adopting a practice which is appropriate to people uh, like ourselves? Uh, Right, so when we look at um, retrieving non-formulaic non practice, you can call it, people call it different things like um, open, uh, open architecture or free-form meditation where you're simply applying awareness to your experience. Uh, this, uh, the particular practice that... Um, I follow comes from Jason Siff and, it's called, and he's called it recollective awareness and if you're interested in, uh, in his approach to meditation uh, he's got a great book out called Unlearning Meditation <laughs> What to do when the instructions get in the way 
It's a very accessible book and, and a very wise <coughs> book about, uh, about meditating according to the Buddha's own um, account in the Satipatthana Sutta and various other, um, various other suttas, but without, uh, without the technical stuff that has, um, that, that has really just satisfied the requirements of monastic life. Uh, another one that I'm very fond of is uh, Barry McGee. I was just reminded of it when talking to Ramsey last night over dinner. Um, Barry McGee comes to it from a Zen background, and Zen has a, a practice rather like non-formulaic awareness practice called Shikantaza, which translates as just sitting. <laughs> but it's not just sitting, it's just sitting with awareness. And um, McGee's uh, book called Ending the Pursuit of Happiness, a Zen Guide, is terrific. You know, it, and he's, a, he's a very uh, uh, a very engaging writer. And he's also a, um, a psychoanalyst and, uh, and a Zen teacher. I think he, this stage is probably a Zen Roshi. Uh, and again, he's just pointing to the appalling errors we can make by not understanding where, what our, where our practice is coming from and what it's supposed to do for us. So, um, the, the, as, as I was saying this morning, the, the leitmotif of the Buddha's teaching is experience. So we need to approach meditation in a way that is going to help us to access our actual living experience, our direct experience. It's for sharpening our senses to delve more deeply into our, in, into our direct individual experience of being in the world and thereby coming to understand, among other things, its cause and effect dynamics. This is the pattern that starts to emerge. For instance, if you're doing recollective awareness, practice fairly intensively, uh, and uh, you are recollecting your uh, experience, and particularly if you write it down in a meditation journal, uh, the patterns begin to emerge. You begin to get a much clearer conception of how your life is unfolding which, of course, puts you in a position of saying, I want to make changes. <clears throat> so, um, we, again, it's a question of, of just attending to those four foundations, uh, the physical, the feeling tone, um, uh, the, the mental and the cognitive. So, um, I guess just to sum this up, um, well, we, we, sorry, just one thing I want to say at the end of that about formulaic and non-formulaic meditation. A lot of people who've been introduced to meditation through a, a formulaic practice, uh, and it can be a formulaic practice directed towards insight meditation, vipassana, or it can be 
uh, particularly if you've been taught a so-called um, concentration or samatha practice, that you've got, you, you get this idea that certain things that are happening to you in meditation are not meditation. You know, um, because, because if you're following a formula, a whole lot of stuff is going to fall outside the formula. And so this is not good. This is a, this is a no-no. But you, you, when you think about it, what are we looking at? We are looking at our experience. So uh, the only rational way to approach it is to say, if I'm going to sit in meditation for 40 minutes, then from the time the bell goes to the time the next bell goes, everything that happens in that time is meditation. It's what I'm supposed to be attending to. Like, it's my experience. It, even, if they, even if it feels like an obsessive going round and round, what we call in the trade sticky mind states, um, it's, uh, it's okay. That's your experience. And if you stay with it, Instead of trying to push it away, say, no, 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 that's not meditation, I've got to do this instead. Um, if, you, if you just let it run, just don't interfere, but follow it. Um, the, the amazing thing is, after a while, it gives up. It, the mind just will, will just move on. It won't do what it threatens to do and just stay in a holding pattern. So... Um, a bit of faith in the mind is, uh, is a good idea. Uh, and just let your mind out to play. As, as McGee calls it, um, uh, invite your mind to display its contents. It's a lovely expression. So, in conclusion, um, the three great trainings um, in terms of ethics Following rules is not going to scratch the surface of what it means to be uh, you know, an ethical agent. The, uh, the, those five basic ethical values are an enormous, enormous and very stimulating challenge for how we, how we are in the world. One of the uh, most interesting practices I've done as a Buddhist, was it about three or four of us formed ourselves into a little ethics group, and um, we'd, we'd meet once a fortnight, and uh, so for a particular fortnight, we would practice the first precept. We, you, I mean, we'd practice all the others too as well, but we would really, really, really concentrate on the first precept, and we every day we'd write a diary about what happened when we tried to practice this precept, you know, we found it was, you know, or the second, let's say take the second, you know, we would find that it was really, uh, it was really easy to uh, put a couple of bob in the collection box of the Salvation Army character at the railway station. And it felt really good, you know, the thing was to check out the karmic consequences of doing this. And you feel good about it, you do, you're an act of kindness, an act of generosity and actually feel good and think, oh, that's interesting, you know, I could do with more of those positive mind states, so I'll do that a bit more. Um, but, um, yeah, so we come, but then it's harder, somehow it's very much harder to be kinder 
to people in your own household. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that's interesting. You know, it's interesting to inquire into that. Why is that? So this is what I mean about ethics being a constant challenge. No, not in a kind of grindy, uphill, uh, plodding way, but you know, what's going on in my life? How, do I, how does my mind actually work? Why is this so hard? Why is this easy? Why is that hard? So uh, looking at your ethical practice is, uh, you know, can take you a long way. And then there's the, um, uh, the, uh, the meditation practice, of, um, which I'd suggest is really about awareness of experience. So choose a practice that is going to take you there. Not, um, not, not one you know, that has been handed to you uh, with uh, the promo, this is the one true way. As soon as you hear, this is the one true, true way, your reply should be, I'm out here. <laughs> um, this is not a good practice for obedience freaks. Um, and wisdom really is what is the practice of what we learn from um, <clears throat> from what we do with our ethical life and what we do with our meditative life. There's, you know, heaps of lessons coming up if we, if we uh, look after our ethical and meditative practice well and intelligently. But interestingly, you know, in Buddhism, wisdom is not knowing stuff. It's um, knowing how to do stuff. So... We'll have a cuppa now. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.